Welcome to the Life Church Reno podcast. Here at Life Church, we seek to love God, love others, and make a difference. From wherever you're listening, we pray that this message impacts you. Great uh, to see you guys this morning. So glad you're here. If you're joining us online, we are grateful. Uh, today, we're continuing in our series called uh, Questions Jesus Asked. Each, each week we're uh, looking at a different one of the questions that Jesus either asked an individual or a group of people, and really we're looking at these questions that Jesus is asking each of us. And today we're looking at one of my favorite questions Jesus asked. If you have your Bibles, go over to John chapter five. Incredible cheer for the Bible. John five, verse one. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades, or we would say five covered patios. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Now, before we uh, get into this question, um, I I just wanna give a little little history here. In the the 1700s, 1800s, what's called textual criticism, historical criticism, biblical criticism began to be prominent and uh, scholars Many were, were questioning if, the, uh, if, if much of the gospel accounts were mere legend and without historical accuracy. And, and one of the passages that, that scholars would point to as evidence uh, of the uh, gospel accounts not being historical in nature and merely being legends is they would point to this story. And they would say, well, there, there is not a pool near this sheep gate in Jerusalem, and this idea of a pool with five covered patios is, is, is seen nowhere in the ancient world. And they said if there's a pool with these five patios, it must be a five-sided pool like the shape of a pentagon. They said that's, that's never been seen anywhere in the ancient world. This story must not be historically and factually accurate, it must be myth or legend. And, and then in the uh, mid-1800s, as, as archaeology became more and more advanced, what was found in Jerusalem, underneath a church that had been built there, were, were these two pools, a rectangle with, with a patio on each side, covered a patio on each side, and then a bridge that went across these two pools, making that there were one pool with this bridge across with this patio in the middle. They discovered this pool of Bethesda, these, this pool with five patios surrounding it and in the middle. And, and so what had been an attempt by scholars to question the uh, the historical accuracy of the Gospels uh, ended up being totally turned on its head and, and shown that, that we have great 
reasons to believe in the historical accuracy of the Gospels as they found this pool of Bethesda. You could go to Jerusalem and see the ruins of that even today. But let's talk about this question, do you want to be made well? Other translations say, do you wanna be made whole? I wanna show you three things about this question. Here's the first one. This is a gracious question. The, the essence of this story we, we, is all about grace and mercy. The, we see this from the place where it takes place, this word Bethesda. Now, whenever you see this uh, a word in, in the New Testament uh, or, or old, Beth, uh, that, that word means house. Bethlehem, uh, house of bread. Bethesda, house of mercy. And so from the location of, of this uh, miracle, we, we, we see that the essence of this is grace and mercy. The location's also incredibly powerful. It's, it's near the sheep gate. And so this sheep gate is the place where the, the sheep uh, would, would come through for the purpose of, of being sacrificed. So here we see at this house of mercy, by this sheep gate, where the, the, the sheep that would be a part of, of the ritual sacrifices would come into Jerusalem, we see Jesus, the Lamb of God, showing the mercy of God at this house of mercy. But we also see that this question is a gracious question just by the size and scope of all that's going on. When we imagine a, a pool, we imagine like a little a pool in our backyard or a neighborhood pool, but, but, but archaeology has shown us that this pool was roughly 130 yards long and, and 55 yards wide. This is a really big pool, and then the language that's used says, says that there uh, were, um, it, it says here a great number of disabled people. King James says great multitudes, the same language that would be used like for the feeding of the 5,000. So there were either hundreds or thousands of, of disabled or, or blind people that, that were on these patios around this water. There was this belief that, that, that the first one, that the waters would stir. There was this belief uh, that, that an angel would, would stir these waters, and, and, and then the first one in the water would be healed. Now, now scholars debate, was, was this actually a, a supernatural thing where there, were these, there, there was this angel that would stir the waters or was this just the belief of the people at this time? Scholars who take the scripture seriously look at it um, through both lenses. But, but there were this great crowd of people there at this large place. And then so what happens is Jesus picks out this one guy. It was, a, it was a gracious question. Jesus sees this guy. This guy doesn't see Jesus. This guy doesn't know who Jesus is. He's not looking for Jesus. He's not asking Jesus any questions. Jesus comes to him. It's an act of grace. But what we see here is there's this principle at play. And, and, and I wanna unpack this for a minute. This, uh, what we see is that Jesus seeks out this guy first. And that's how it works with us and God. It's, it's this biblical principle. This guy doesn't come to Jesus, Jesus comes to him. This guy doesn't ask Jesus, Jesus asks him. Jesus, this guy doesn't know who Jesus is, but Jesus knows who he is. He is not in any way after or pursuing Jesus, Jesus comes after him. Here's this principle. The principle is that if you ever find God, it's because God came searching for you first. Let me show this to you in Romans chapter three, verse 10. 
He says, this is Paul writing, he says, as it is written, quoting the Old Testament, there is no one righteous, not even one, there is no one who understands, there is no one who seeks God. So, so but there's this thing in us, like, well, hey, I've, I've had either in your own experience or people that you've known that, that came to a moment where they began asking questions about God or engaging the scriptures or going to church in some way seeking after God. And so here's, here's what I would explain to you this. Nobody comes to the real God on God's terms without God's help. So without God's help, we, either, we do one of two things. We either want to come to a God that we have crafted in our own minds. Uh, this, the, the saying has, has been coined, uh, God created us in his image and we have been returning the favor to him ever since. So we either want to come to a God uh, uh, that, is, that we have crafted in our minds that is a mix of, a, of Santa Claus, our grandfather, and George Washington rolled into one, the God of our understanding, not the God who was revealed in Scripture. So we either have crafted the, our own view of God in our minds, uh, or we've been so informed by, by the culture and its views of God that, 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 when, that we either have created a, a God of our own understanding in our own mind, different than the God of the Bible, or we want to come to God on our own terms. God, I'm gonna come to you, and you're gonna help me on my agenda, and I'm still going to maintain significant control of my life. So if, if you have come to the real God on his terms, you have done so with his help. The Holy Spirit's work in your life. See, I, I, I would think of it like this. In most relationships, there is a primary initiator and a primary responder. Like, do you have relationships where you're like, whenever I talk to that person, it's because I called them. You're the primary initiator. Can you think of this? Or like, with your, maybe with your spouse or your significant other, you're like, if we're gonna plan a trip together, it's gonna be because I initiated it. If we're gonna go on a, in our relationship, Claire is a world-class responder. Claire will respond to the people around her all the time. She's always doing it. But like, if we're gonna have a date night, it was, it was because I initiated it. Most relationships, there's a primary initiator and a primary responder. And our relationship with God, he is the primary initiator. And so if you come to the real God of the Bible on his terms, it's because God, God's work by his Holy Spirit has brought you to that place. He pursues us when we would not have pursued him. So Jesus coming to this man who didn't know who Jesus was, wasn't on the lookout for Jesus. Jesus asks him a question, he doesn't ask him one. And what we see is this picture, this principle of God by his grace and his mercy pursues us by his spirit when we would not have pursued him without his work in our life. Here's the next question, next point. This question, do you wanna be made well? Do you wanna be made whole? It is an uncomfortable and a revealing question. And at its surface, it seems like a ridiculous question. Imagine you're in the ICU and doctor comes in to you and, you, and says, uh, do you wanna get better? And you're like, yes, I have this horrible 
flesh-eating disease, I would love to not have it any longer. And you're like, Doc, that seems obvious. That's why I'm at this hospital. I would like to get better. It seems like a ridiculous question. But Jesus doesn't ask any ridiculous questions. Jesus is asking a very deep question that, it, that if we sink it, uh, embrace it in our, in, for our own understanding, it's an uncomfortable question. It's a revealing question. Jesus says, do you want to be made well? And let's see the reply. Verse seven, sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. He doesn't answer the question. We see in, the, in John chapter four, Jesus asked the woman at the well a very important question, and, and she doesn't want to answer the question either. She wants to talk around it. Same thing's happening here. The invalid replied, of no one to help me get the pool and the water is stirred while I'm trying to get in. Someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day in which this took place was a Sabbath. And so, so this is a really deep question. Do I want to be made well? This question, do I really want to change? Some people, at least at part of them, does not really want to be made well. Whether that's spiritually or emotionally, physically, or relationally. There's part of us that might want to be made well, part of us that doesn't. See, sometimes, sometimes people like their gossip. And sometimes people like their porn. And sometimes people like their addiction. And sometimes people like their unforgiveness. And sometimes people like their anger. Or at least part of them does. See, the question we have to ask is, has my infirmity become my identity? Sometimes these broken parts of, of us, we begin to just so latch onto them that, that part of us is, is scared to let them go. This guy's been, been disabled for 38 years, and no doubt he desperately wanted to no longer be in that condition, but for him to be well would mean that his whole life would look different. Up to this point, he, his life was, was incredibly painful and difficult and uncomfortable, but also was a situation where he was regularly receiving pity, regularly receiving compassion, and, and regularly receiving charity. He would not have had to work these last 38 years. For him to be made well was both what he desired, but it was also gonna change everything in ways that would no doubt have been uncomfortable in some ways. Have I become an excuse maker or a blame shifter? Jesus says, do you wanna be made well? And the guy says, well, I've got nobody to help me. None of these, everyone else has got people to help them, but no one's helping me. I'm trying to get in this pool first and no one will ever help me. No one's here for me. It's other people's fault. It's an excuse. It's a shifting of blame. It's no one will help me. And I think sometimes this question, do I wanna be made well, there's part of this that, that, that either doesn't wanna be or doesn't think we can be because we've, we've lost hope that change is possible. Now, he, this guy, and I, I want you to really get this, this guy had just enough hope to show up. The fact that he was going to that pool on either every day or some regular basis, he had just enough hope to show up that at the very least, somebody, some kind people would come and give him some money there. He had just enough hope to show up, but not enough hope to expect anything to change. And, and I think we do this with church. So, you know, so those of you that are here by your own volition, now some of you, are here because your spouse has browbeat you or bribed you to be here, or your parents have browbeat you or bribed you to be here. And I just wanna be on the record, 
Bribing works better than browbeating. You promise somebody a great brunch, they'll do a lot of things. But those of you that are here on your own volition, you have enough hope to show up. But do you have enough hope to actually expect something to change? For God to actually encounter your life. He had just, we do this with church, we do this with our marriages. For some of you, your, your marriage has been difficult or unhappy for some long period of time and you've had enough hope to not get divorced. You might have even had enough hope to read a marriage book or two, but you have not had enough hope to actually expect that things could actually change. We're, we don't fully give up, but, but we don't fully commit to change. We have to ask ourselves this question. Do I want Jesus to save me or do I just want him to take me where I want to go? See, this guy had a plan. His plan was go over there and get someone to help him get in that water. And, and, and so Jesus says, do you wanna be made well? He doesn't answer the question. He just blame shifts, he makes excuses. He's like, I got nobody to help me get in the water first. It's kinda like he's saying to Jesus, Jesus, how about you just take as long as it takes, maybe the rest of the day or, or, or days or weeks, and you just hang out with me right here by this pool because my plan, my agenda, my path forward for my future involves me getting in that pool first one, but it's gonna take someone to help me. Would you be the guy that throws me in the pool, Jesus? And what he wants is, is he wants Jesus to help him get him where he wants to go, but Jesus has something else better in mind. Do I want Jesus to save me or just take me where I wanna go. I've invited uh, Dr. Dusty Braun to join me for a few minutes. Let's welcome him for the stage. In addition to being on our staff team, Dr. Braun's a psychologist in private practice and first service, we had a great time together. We're gonna try to behave a little better second service. Yes, indeed. Um, if you can get a hold of that video of first service, it is worth a watch just this. It's week. been watched. We erased it after first service. Um, so, Dr. Braun, in your practice, you know, so much I think of what you face. It's like there are these things where part of us wants to change, part doesn't, or our desire to change is not sufficient to do the hard work, or we don't think we can unpack some of this stuff. Yeah, so uh, change is hard, right? And, and then, you know, most people, when, they're, when you're looking for help, whether it's with a friend or you're in counseling or your marriage is going through a difficult time and you're reaching out for resources, there's part of you that wants to change. There's part of you that really desperately wants to change, but th there's also a lot of reasons why we don't change. And, and honestly, we're in really good company. I mean, Paul talks about this in Romans where he talks about the things that I, I, I want to do, I find myself not doing, and the things that I don't wanna do, I find myself doing. And so this, this idea that, that we can change is, is real, but it, it's also difficult, and there's these parts of us that, um, that don't change for a lot of reasons. One is it's a fear of the unknown, uh, we're also, we're, we're creatures of, of comfort and habit. Once we get into a rhythm and a pattern of doing things the way I've been doing them for a long period of time, it is, it's really hard to change. Psychologically speaking, there's this idea that we would talk about of something being a loss aversion, that people tend to be more motivated to avoid losses than to acquire gains. I'll say that one more time. People tend to be more motivated to avoid losses than to acquire gains. And so change often involves letting go of something whether it's a habit, a relationship, or a belief system, the fear of losing something familiar and comfortable can outweigh the potential benefits of change, leading people to resist it. Like, like part of me kind of wants to run a marathon, but a lot of me loves to eat queso. 
Correct. Okay, because queso is good. And by the way, Costco has this new brisket queso in the refrigerated section. That's a life. That is a. I got it first first time this week. That I wanted to go buy more that same day. Did you? Self control. Um, yeah. And uh, but yeah, there's this thing where part of me wants this, but part of me doesn't want to give this up. Yeah, and it's hard because it becomes part of our, our self-image or our identity, right? That I'm, I'm used to operating a certain way when I'm around my coworkers. I've been doing this for so many years, even though there's part of me that knows I should be using less four-letter words or I should be a better represent, uh, representative of Christ in the workplace or in our marriage, right? We know that our, our anger is an issue or our patience is an issue, and yet there's part of us that wants to change, but then there's a part of us that also feels fairly justified in being angry towards our spouse. I won't change until they change. Exactly. Yeah. We make yes. an, that excuse-making, blame-shifting thing. Yep, yeah. And so there's a lot of reasons why we don't change, um, and, and so, and I think, you know, we're gonna talk about this in a second, but really tapping into that part of you that does want to change, that's really hard work, and we have to, to teach ourselves to pay attention to that space whenever it pops up for us. But how can we narrow that gap between I, I want to change, I know I need to change, but either I don't think I can or I don't, I'm not willing to put in the work, how can we narrow that gap? Yeah, so I think there's a, there's a few questions we can begin to ask ourselves, and we'll start with some of the, the easy questions, and we'll get to the harder ones. That What specific aspects of my current situation or behavior do I want to change? Why do I want to make this change? What are the potential benefits? What are the underlying beliefs or fears that are holding me back from making this change? So now we're starting to go a little bit deeper. I think that's really, really huge. Like, what, what am I believing that makes me either think I can't or doesn't think I should right. that is likely at least partially or fully untrue. Right. And, um, and then these questions become a little bit more difficult, right? Like, what is the worst case scenario if I do make this change? Okay, so that's the positive thing. If I start eating better food. No, no brisket queso. No brisket yeah. queso. Get more steps in. Yes. That's a, yes. Yeah. Um, but then there's the second question of what is the worst case scenario if I don't make this change? And that's a scary question. That's a lot of times the thing that pops up for us when we wake up at three in the morning and we start thinking about our lives and we, we have this, this internal dialogue with ourselves, and, and that's your brain, that's your body telling you, hey man, there's something going on in your life that needs to be addressed and you're not addressing it or at least not addressing it to the fullest extent. And, and then the second piece of what are some small manageable steps that I can make towards making, uh, uh, towards making this change, uh, which could be really hard, right? That like, you know, I, I look at someone like, like Joe Coudrier that is in really good health and he, he exercises all the time and he eats those, way healthier. Those Coudriers ride their bikes everywhere they Everywhere, go. literally everywhere. Although I did see them getting a, 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 sl- a slushy at the... Maverick last week, so um, uh, a couple weeks. <laughs> but ago, they rode but, their bikes. To but get they that rode slusher. their bikes to get the slushy, right? If so, you ride your bike to Coldstone, I mean, you're offsetting because Coldstone is sure. far. Yeah, yes. yeah. Um, but so, what is the smallest increment of change that I can do? And, and literally, when you begin to engage with this, you flip on a part of your brain. In our our left prefrontal cortex, we have this thing. It's called the hinge of the brain that when I begin to make steps towards change, I activate that part of my brain. And it might feel like the dumbest thing in the world. Like, I'm only getting 2,000 steps a day. Well, can I, can I do 2,500? Can I, you know, my, my house is I mean, is you can pretty much get that just walk into your fridge. But, but yes, for the brisket yeah, case. Uh, yeah, it's, yes. uh, so Dusty, how, let's, how do you think, 
how do we balance this thing where it's like clear, I mean, the scripture's clear, like we can't long-term fundamentally change the core of who we are alone. You know, can a leopard change his spots? No, you know, and, but also there is this responsibility thing, but we also desperately need God's help. How do, how do we ask God to help us yet still take responsibility? Unpack that. Yeah, and there's, so there's this prayer that I've, I've tried to navigate and put into my own life uh, in, in the last few years, because it, it used to be this thing where it was just like, oh, geez, like uh, that part of me needs to change, but that just feels bad. I need to clean myself up, and then I'll invite Jesus in. And, and that's, we're looking at this thing backwards, especially with kind of what you, you were saying earlier, that it's God that comes to us, not just for salvation, but the process of sanctification is not something that we do, right? And so it's one, taking an honest assessment of myself, but then two, bringing that honest assessment to God in this space of God, I, I need your help here. Yeah, like God, I I don't want to surrender to you. God, I want to be pride filled and angry, and I don't want to have patience and help to put inside of me that desire. And so we're we're praying even just down to that thing of I don't see this thing, and I don't even. There's part of me that doesn't even want this thing. There's eighty percent of me that doesn't doesn't want really to want to forgive, doesn't want to heal my marriage, right. doesn't want to give up the addiction. right. Yeah. So God increase that, increase that positive, take that to the Lord, pay attention to it, don't turn that voice off, but bring those things to God in, in prayer and in worship um, and surround yourself with other people that, that are moving in that same direction that you are. God, help me to want to love my wife, help me to want to forgive, help me yeah. to want to stop this bad practice. Yep. Awesome. Let's thank, let's thank Dr. Braun. Here's the last thing about this. It's uh, this question, so it's a gracious question. It's this kind of deep, probing, revealing question. It's also both a specific and a holistic question. Let me show this to you. Uh, the, the way this story ends is fascinating. Um, Jesus heals the man, John 5, 9. At once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath, and so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. And so Again, these religious people totally missed the point. This guy's experienced this healing and they're focusing on the rules they've made up. He says, but he replied, and then the guy is doing one of two things. He's either declaring his allegiance to Jesus or he's throwing Jesus under the bus. I think it becomes clear in the story what he's doing. He says, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. And so on the one hand, it feels like, hey, I'm gonna obey the guy that healed me. Whatever he says goes. Or, hey, don't prosecute me for, for carrying my mat on the Sabbath. It's this other guy. He's, again, keeping his pattern of blame shifting. He, he says, uh, the man who made me well said this. And so they asked him, well, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? He says, the man who healed me had no, uh, he says, the man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, uh, you are well again, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. But then look here, the man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. This guy goes and rats on Jesus. Jesus heals him. The religious people say, why are you carrying your mat? He's like, well, because that guy said so. He's keeping his pattern of blame shifting. And then Jesus comes and addresses, Jesus addresses this deeper issue in his life and identifies himself. And then he goes and says, hey, there's the guy. There's the guy that told me to break the law on the Sabbath. It's, it's, uh, but here's what we see here. Jesus wants to engage my pressing needs and my ultimate need. 
Jesus wants to engage my temporary needs and my forever need. So this guy for 38 years has been paralyzed. Jesus heals him. Then Jesus sees him again, and he, now he begins talking about these heart issues. He says, hey, man, you're, you're walking now, but there's still stuff going on inside your heart that needs to change. What Jesus is saying, he's saying, I don't just wanna help you in your body. I, I want you to believe. I, I want you to be both spiritually well and completely healed, not just physically healed. And, 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 it's, and this guy's response is lacking. We have to ask ourselves this question. And this question this guy needed to deal with. Do I want real transformation or do I just want a quick fix? Do I want my marriage to be all, all that, that, that God says it can be or do I just want my spouse to be 30% nicer? Do, do I want real transformation or just a quick fix? And so Jesus is coming and saying, hey, I've done this one thing in your life, but there's even more that, that I want to happen internally in, in your spirit, in your heart, and who you are on the inside, not just physically. And so here's what we see with this guy. We see this guy that, God, that Jesus does this incredible miracle in his life, a guy who didn't deserve it, a guy that wasn't looking for Jesus, a guy that, that, that didn't ask for it, a, a guy that wasn't even really sure that he wanted to be made well, a guy that didn't really believe Jesus could make a difference, and Jesus comes through and changes his life. Yet afterwards, his choices reflect the fact that either he didn't really understand what had happened, or he didn't fully appreciate what had happened, of what Jesus had done for him. Does this guy remind you of anyone you know? That I, I think we have this propensity where Jesus has changed our lives and either there are these moments where we forget or we don't really understand it or we don't really appreciate it based on how we respond and the choices that we make. Jesus makes this guy's dream come true. He's been paralyzed for 38 years. Jesus heals him. And, and, and then, but his response, we don't ever see him say thank you. We see when the first time he gets a question as if he's in trouble, he's, he's like, oh, it was that guy's fault, the guy that just healed him. And then he finds out who, who Jesus is and where he is and goes and rats out Jesus. The, the choices that he is making afterwards reveal that, 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 that the internal transformation is, is, is at least not complete or maybe not even started. It's like he doesn't even really understand what Jesus has done. Either he just doesn't fully understand it or doesn't fully appreciate it because at this point he is showing no love, gratitude, or loyalty to Jesus. I have a question for you. It's a question Jesus asks all of us. Do you want to be made well? And what is that area in your life that, 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 that you would say, I, I, I need that there's an area of brokenness. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a habit or an addiction. There's this thing and, and you're like, man, part of me kind of wants to be made well, but part of me doesn't want it enough to do the hard work. Part of me doesn't want it enough to own responsibility. Part of me has been blame shifting, or part of me has lost hope that change can really come. Do you want to be made well? Let's pray together. So Father, we do pray that you, by your spirit, would give us just a, a great sense of hope confidence in that you are a merciful, gracious God. 
who desires to meet us in our moments of our pressing needs that we're aware of and our ultimate need, which is for you. That you are gracious and you are merciful and you want to meet us. And that even when we're not looking for you, you're pursuing us. And even when we've lost hope that that real change can happen, and even in the moments where part of us wants to change but part of us doesn't, part of us doesn't want it to change enough to, to take the steps, to take the responsibility, to change the behaviors, that, that you are still engaging us in those moments. So guys, maybe even just in the quietness of your heart, you might even just, just confess to the Lord, God, God I, I need your help in this area. God, would you give me the desire to change in this area? God, would you give me the desire to see my marriage be all that you say it can be? Would you give me the desire to forgive that person that has really, really hurt me? Would you give me this desire to walk away from this addiction once and for all? God, would you make up the gaps where, between where I want to be made well in some ways, but in some ways don't. Would you make up the gaps of hope and faith and trust where part of me has hope that things can be different, but part of me doesn't really have hope for real change? Holy Spirit, would you meet us in those gaps? Would you fill those gaps of desire or of discipline or of faith or of trust? Would you meet us? Would you help us? In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Life Church Reno podcast. Remember to subscribe to hear more messages like this. And you can also find more information at lifechurchreno.com. Blessings to you.